Hey everyone, this is Arik. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to give you a quick heads up that this discussion ended up being quite long, almost two hours and 20 minutes. So we decided to split it into two episodes. So today you're going to get the first part and tune in next week for the second half of our discussion on this subject. And with that, we'll get into the episode. So today we're talking about in defense of politics, to defend politics against our last guest, Brian Kaplan. We wanted to have a fair take on the subject and kind of articulate the counterpoint. Yeah, and um, quick shout out to friend of the pod, Michael Cameron. Uh, He inspired my initial, you know, sort of pushback on some of these concepts and he gave us a really thorough critique and, um, you know, a big list of reasons why he disagreed with Kaplan's uh, ideas and uh, I really appreciated that Michael so thank you and I uh, hope you're enjoying your honeymoon out in Puerto Rico congrats on getting married congrats Michael and uh, yeah thanks for being so engaged with the pod and I hope we do your rebuttal justice today so, so the way we'll lay this out is we'll, we'll start with the book we'll talk about the In Defense of Politics by Bernard Crick and um, I'll potentially layer in some of the other critiques um, and maybe we'll talk about those a little bit at the end as well, um, depending on how things go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this book, the context of this book is like in the middle of the century, a lot of different systems of governance were vying with one another for supremacy. And most of them were apolitical. Most of them were ideological or radically democratic or technocratic. And Bernard Crick felt the need to articulate a defense of politics being like a defense of a conciliatory nonviolent process by which all parties in a society can have a say over how their lives are run. Um, because he just felt that it was under attack from a lot of major forces of his day and, and our day too. Um, and he wrote an extremely convoluted, extremely painful to read, brutal book Yes. Uh, not not brutal because the content is like so emotional or something. Brutal just because like his writing style is like horrific. For the <laughs> academic. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say out of all the books that I've read for this podcast, this one was by far the worst in terms of writing style. Um, I, you know, I think Mar- I told you this earlier on, but Margaret, when I read her passage of this, she was like, "This sounds like the guy just did not have an editor." Um, yeah, straight straight up. And yeah, it's, it's very rambling, um, but that's not to take away from the ideas he presents. I think he has some really strong ideas and, and hopefully we can condense those down for you so that you don't have to read this book. Um, unless you really love politics, I, I honestly wouldn't recommend picking this one up out of all the books that we've read for you guys uh, so far. Yeah, I, I would say if you don't pick this up, you should pick up a better book on each of the themes he talks about. So like, you know, pick up a book on Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, pick up a book on like the French Revolution and like the dangers of like majoritarianism. Um, pick up a book on the managerial elite and, um, you know, scientism and stuff like that, because each of these themes is really important. But if you can't, Listen to this podcast. Like, enjoy this podcast. That's the best way to hear about these ideas. <laughs> yeah, seriously. We, we, we had to put in work on this one for you guys. I mean, th- this one was, was pretty painful. I'm not going to lie to you. 
Yeah. But okay, so I think the, I thought one thing that was interesting is he spends a lot of time at the beginning of the book, like laying out his um, very tight definition of what politics is. It's much narrower than traditionally what we think of as politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think as a as a layperson, as someone who's not a political scientist, um, I think of politics as basically just governance right and everything that goes into that yeah so um, but that's he, he says that is not what politics is at all um i'm trying to find the uh definition here that i highlight okay so he says politics then can be simply defined as the activity by which differing interests within a given unit of rule are conciliated by giving them a share in power in proportion to their importance to the welfare and the survival of the whole community. And to complete the formal definition, a political system is that type of government where politics proves successful in ensuring reasonable stability and order. Um, another few characteristics of a political system and politics that he talks about is that it has to be a sufficiently advanced and technological society that there are enough of these competing interests that have enough power and contribution um, to be considered. Which is why the family needs to be run differently than society. Yeah. Right. Um, but I thought that was pretty interesting. He, he's very like... I don't know what the word is, but he's very specific about his definitions on a few things. Later in the book, he gets into talking about like nationalism, and I thought his very tight definition of what a nation is was also like contrary to what um, I think of as a nation as a layperson. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I think it really strengthens his book. And it, it goes back to, like, one of the things that we talked about on the short podcast, which is, like, if you want to argue philosophically successfully, start from weak, widely held premises. Meaning, like, your premises shouldn't say too much. And you shouldn't have to, like, find other um, supports for a premise because it's so convoluted. So, for example, he says here, like, um, <clears throat> the compromises of politics Aristotle attempted to argue must be in some sense creative of future benefits, but it's probably wiser to keep what we want to defend simple um, so that you can actually like argue it successfully, keep the premise tight. Um, and simply to point out that no finality is implied in any act of conciliation or compromise. So, so I like that. My thing is, he has that like philosophical clarity on definitions, but his writing style. Yeah. Yeah. It's just rambling. Yeah. It's rambling. It's like these massive, super dense paragraphs. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I'll find, uh, one thing I find about his like intro that's unconvincing to me is, or not unconvincing, but needs to be supported is, he says that orderly government is, after all, a civilized vir virtue or civilized value compared to anarchy or arbitrary rule. And political government clearly remains more acceptable the more people if they're given any chance or choice in the matter. The second one, yes, that's a weak, widely held premise. I suppose the first one is in a sense, too. But for me personally, I would need to hear it argued that orderly government is better than anarchy. Because I've been enjoying living in Night City having my cyberware implants like, <laughs> <laughs> you know with no no speed limits unpasteurized milk <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, but that's a video game. You know, you don't. You're not gonna actually die if you drink dog pasteurized milk. Yeah, that's fair. But but my point is like this 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 needs to be justified. I feel. I think a justification can be made, but it's not a standalone premise. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Do you think it's justified? I think it is justified, and I think the reason for that is because I believe that in anarchy, just the strongest elements win. Um, And I think, like, violence is the default state of nature. Um, So I think anarchy lends itself to violence for that reason. So so that right there is a much, much more defensible statement. Like, right, which is like, violence is bad. An orderly society is less violent. Therefore, an orderly society is superior to a society that's rife with violence. Yeah. Fair. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Not to be too pedantic, but I just think it does need to be, like, justified a little bit. Because otherwise, why not just have it, all, all of us just live in a prison? Yeah. You know, perfect order. I wonder if part of that, too, is, like, at, in 1961, you know, were the, you know, libertarian and anarcho-syndicalist or whatever, anarchism in general, was it maybe less of an accepted idea um, than today? Because I think in political science circles today, there's lots of anarchists, um, and there are people who make relatively compelling arguments for that but i'm not sure that that was the case in 1961 where it was like you know again this battle between like majoritarianism um you know totalitarianism technocratic rule and you know um republican democracies yeah i think i think you're absolutely right i mean back then like you know you're talking about like anarchists like performing bombings and stuff like that in the u.s yeah you know like whatever sacco and vanzetti yeah. Um, whereas now it's like, oh, it's more of a quaint idea that like we like to hear about when we're pissed off about our taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I do want to do the anarchist handbook at some point because I'm curious to see if they have any consequences. Because like you said, it feels to me that in a state of anarchy, order is created by the strong. Yeah. Like, how do you enforce a persistent state of anarchy? Right. Right. I mean, you need a higher order structure for that, namely the government. <laughs> right, right. And if you look at, like, you know, failed governments um, that aren't really able to govern effectively, I mean, what do you see? You see, like, warlords gaining power um, yeah, and yeah. essentially creating their own mini governments mm-hmm. through force and violence. Right, right. Um, other than that one, I know there's some, like, whenever I say this to someone who's, like, a real anarchist, they talk about some, like, one community in, like, the wilds of Venezuela or something like that that's, like, true anarchy or something. Whatever. It's not a sufficiently complex society for political rule to be necessary, as Barnard Crick would say. Right, right. And it does let, ask this, like, foreign affairs question, right? Which is, if, if anarchy was an adaptive way for a community to exist... Why hasn't it? You know, a lot of stuff has been tried, especially in the twentieth century, right? And I think part of why why it isn't is if you have an anarchist neighbor, like a country that's anarchic, why not just go take their shit? Yeah, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's fair. Um, 
So yeah, I'm okay. sure there's, I'm sure there's some good arguments. Well, I'm sure they have something they say in response to. So we should investigate that in the future. So they'll have a rebuttal to the rebuttal at some point, maybe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think another interesting thing was he talked about like as he was laying out the politics, kind of related to what you said. Um, it's this idea of like the amount of power that the state can hold is is always in flux and there's nothing in politics that is like an untouchable principle. I think he goes back to that a lot. And I found that to be interesting and kind of a challenge to my personal opinions because I, yeah, same, I same. am, you know, more in line with like the classic ideas of liberalism yeah. like Jefferson and Locke where we talk about these inalienable rights. But right. I think his argument that like, well, actually any government necessarily will impede on people's in some cases people's ability to pursue life liberty or or pursuit of happiness or property or, or whatever your principles are um that's clearly the case in the united states right oh yeah um yeah you know like the government kills people first of all that's you know the government jails people um Taxes people. Taxes people. That definitely hampers your pursuit of happiness. <laughs> yeah. Tells people what they can and can't do generally. Yeah. yeah. So so it's an interesting um, argument for sure. Um, this isn't super related. Well, it's kind of related to that idea of like, you know, what powers the government has. But he has this quote from Lincoln that I really like that talks about this. It says, it has long been a grave question whether any government not too strong for the liberties of its people can be strong enough to maintain its liberties in great emergencies. And it's this interesting idea of, you know, you're trying to maintain the state through time, but you're also trying to maintain it in, in crisis. And when you're maintaining the state through time, you're trying to spread power throughout society um, to, like, reconcile these differing interests. But in times of crisis, you have to consolidate power in order to preserve the state, right? Like... Um, Lincoln during the Civil War using his emergency powers. It's a good example. It's or, good example. The, you know, the United States or the UK in World War II, you know, conscription, um, you know, the, the turnaround of the economy, you know, turning it into a factory of war because war was the key to the survival of the state at that time. Right, right, especially for the UK. Yeah. yeah. So, but also, I mean, yeah. Yeah, for, for the US too, obviously, like, if, if you had a, a Nazi-controlled Europe, there are far-reaching consequences of that. Um, but one thing about that I find interesting is the manufactured crisis, either half or fully manufactured. So because of this quality that most people will acknowledge that you know sometimes liberty has to be infringed to like keep the ship afloat, politicians and governments have um, an incentive to manufacture or half-manufacture crises or have a kernel of truth spun into something that appears to be an emergency in order to consolidate their power and disregard the views of various minorities um, or even the majority in some cases. Um, and to an extent, I feel like we saw this during COVID where <clears throat> the comparison was drawn almost instantly with World War II, right? Yeah. COVID was bad. Tons of people died. It was not World War II. Um, and I think... COVID also proves out something interesting, which is centralization makes sense if there's one answer that's the right answer and people are scattered and they are pulling to pulling at cross purposes to that right answer. 
decentralization makes sense when we don't know what the right answer is and we want to try various things to see what works so i feel like with covid having different states take different approaches based on the moral intuitions and values of their citizens made sense because like we were able to actually run different experiments to see what would work you know Um, yeah yeah i think that's definitely true and do you notice that we're like in a state of perpetual crisis like er like for the past several years, everything has been a crisis, constantly. Yeah, yeah, whether it's, you know, Trump with the border wall, or whether it's... Russia collusion. Russia collusion, whether it's COVID, it is... I mean, but that's something that we've seen over the last decades, is the consolidation of power in general. And this was actually something, um, uh, one of the critiques that, that we talked about is... So one thing that Brian said is that basically... You know, when we were like, what can we do about this idea yeah. of, of politics? Um, he, he was basically like, nothing. Yeah, which is unhelpful. <laughs> which which is de- definitely unhelpful. Yeah. And I disagree with this. I mean, the, the like, reform is possible, you know? And I think yeah. Bernard Craig and, and also, you know, Michael both touched on this in that, um, you know, nothing is, is sacred or set in stone in politics. Like, politics is about reconciling different interests to try to get good governance and so we have the ability to reform things um so one of the things that that we could reform for example is this consolidation of power in the um in the executive system and even within you know the the senate and the house um you know the the speaker of the house today has massive power that they didn't have before um and that encourages this sort of like, you know, partisan approach to politics because ultimately your ability to become the Speaker of the House is dependent on your ability to build strong relationships and garner support from throughout your party. Uh, but not across the aisle. But not across the aisle. Um, and then once you're in that position, you know, you have the ability to control what can be discussed or voted on in that political body. Right. Um, and a similar thing, I believe, in, in the Senate. So that's an interesting thing as well. And, and I think that is something that can be reformed. So I think the critique of Brian there is like, you, you can reform it. What you have to do is engage in politics. You have to yeah. go out there. Yeah. You have to win elections. You have to convince people to change things. Um, and just deciding you're apolitical and removing yourself from the system might work for you personally, but it's not going to lead to the outcomes that you claim to desire. Right. And I mean, that's something he, he mentions in, in the book as well, where he's like, you may think by just being above politics and not getting into it that you're, you know, you're doing yourself a favor, but really you might be unwittingly on the side of those people who want to replace politics with something more like totalitarian, you know, without right. realizing it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the big cha- challenge with like, libertarianism in general libertarians and anarchists and minarchists and all these folks is like there's no plan to actually win you know yeah yeah right right um well i think it to me at least it's pretty clear that the answer is to go like win elections like if you want to change shit go win elections yeah yeah be more compelling than the other candidates and if you can't do that then you're a bad politician and you have to slowly build the political machine and like the funding and stuff. And if that takes time, it takes time, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have to do it though. 
Um, <clears throat> maybe it can take less time, dude. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it can take less time. I saw a guy on Twitter who, uh, in 40 days, built himself up to 10,000 followers. <laughs> so that got me thinking. I'm like, shit. That's pretty good. Yeah, no, I was impressed. I was like, this is pretty cool. Okay, so so then um, Crick gets into a defense of politics against ideology, um, or in other words, totalitarianism. So he says... Totalitarian rule marks the sharpest contrast imaginable with political rule, and ideological thinking is an explicit and direct challenge to political thinking. The totalitarian believes that everything is relevant to government and that the task of government is to reconstruct society utterly according to the goals of an ideology. The ideology will offer a criticism of existing society and a prophecy on the basis of a single key to history of a final, perfectly just, and perfectly stable stage of society. So, when I was reading this section, what came to mind for me is that, like, we have totalitarians in our midst, and they don't look like what you, what you would think they look like. It's not just the, like, you know, Twitter Nazis and commies. Like, there are people on the mainstream left and right who, look, think about this, okay? The idea that nothing is outside of ideology, nothing is outside of government, your personal relationships, your romantic relationships the art, the stuff you watch in the theaters, the stuff you watch on TV. Like, you know, there are people on the right producing this kind of content, like, that's very catered towards, you know, having this, like, totalizing worldview. And definitely there's people on the left like this. Mm -hmm. I I literally can't turn on the TV without getting a lecture on the, you know, flavor of the moment, um, you know, what do you call it? Like, democratic platform, like, anything. Like, I, um... I heard that in the new Jurassic Park movie, a lot of the dinosaurs are trans. <laughs> but, like, you know, my, my point is, this is, like, I mean, do, do you see that? Like, were you feeling that when you read this chapter? Yeah, I think I was. Um, yeah, especially this idea that everything is relevant to government, um, for sure. And also the idea that the task of government is to reconstruct society utterly. Uh, I think that's becoming... A uh, more and more mainstream view in America on both sides, and that is quite alarming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I think, you know, I, I think in reading this book, I am convinced that politics is ultimately the best way of of governing a complex society because yeah. it does rely on you know conciliation instead of coercion, right? Right. We're going to it's going to be messy and it's going to be rough and it's not always going to get the best outcomes in every situation yeah but the alternatives are so horrible that it it seems like the only reasonable path forward right yeah i i definitely agree with that that's how i felt coming out of it too yeah this ideology section was really scary because he also makes the point that uh, the nazis were democratically elected yeah yeah he doesn't he, he he talks about how you know, to, to take another quote, totalitarian regimes indeed are a product of a democratic age. They depend upon mass support, and they have found a way of treating society as if it were or were about to be a single mass. Yeah, yeah, that, that Aristotle concept where he's like, unity is like the death of the polis. Yeah. You know, like as we sand away all our differences and we like merge closer and closer together and everyone has to be homogenous it's like it's the death of the community altogether right yeah and even you know he, he talks about 
uh, J.S. Mills on Liberty, which we've talked about before. Yeah, that book. Pod. And he's talked about the... That was premised on the need to defend liberty against even democracy and, and to give Democrats uh, re- a, a respect for liberty. Um, and, you know, representative government is not a guarantee of liberty if all the posts are filled by men of the same mind. Right, right. And that that's the thing I wonder in this day and age is we're in a democratic system, but we're in a totalitarian moment. And, you know, the right likes to say that it's it's purely a left-wing totalitarian moment, but I don't think it is in the sense that I think the degree of involvement, intrusion, desire to reshape society, the, the degree to which every aspect of our lives is um, <clears throat> under threat by ideology or, you know, ha- has to be protected against encroachment from ideology constantly is vast, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. Hopefully we're able to like survive it. We might be able to because it's, it's kind of a natural back and forth swing to these things, but... Yeah, I think, you know, I've hoped that, that we'll make it through that. Um, I think we are seeing pushback on both extremes by, you know, the, the majority in the middle um, yeah. lately. I think we're seeing it on, on both sides to an extent. Um, hopefully that continues um, and, and that ultimately wins out because, you know, like ultimately we, we are... Uh, extremely diverse country with, you know, varying interests, tons of special groups, different groups with, with differing interests, sometimes directly contradictory interests, but ultimately, you know, we're all working towards living in a good and just society, right? Like, that's what I believe most people want. Um, I think we can kind of, you know, come back to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, on that, one thing I found interesting was, like, he kind of downplays the need for having common values, which is something I've always believed is necessary, to have some basic common values. And he's like, no, actually what you need is a basic respect for nonviolent conciliation and um, an and interest in survival. Right. And, like, a stake in, in society and a desire for it to do well. But you don't actually necessarily need common values, and that's good because people tend to vote their temperament. And you may not find, you know, temp- you're not going to find temperamental commonality between, like, the most bleeding heart, you know, lib and the most, like, whatever, um, gun-toting, like, redneck, you know, yeah. necessarily. Yeah. Um, yeah, so one thing on the totalitarianism front that I found interesting is, like, He says that totalitarian rule is not simply autocracy, intense autocracy. For autocrats, once the state group too large and too complex, uh, you know, not every group interest could be dominated by a palace guard, and the problem of power could only be solved by sharing power. So limited government, government by consultation, and such became administrative necessities. And this speaks to that whole, like, exotic libertarian point of, like, if we can't have democracy, then we might as well go back to monarchy because then at least we only have to convince one person that we should be free. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was kind of a... It's making an insane resurgence. 
Yeah. But I take their point that an autocrat, you know, is not uh, like a totalitarian dictator, you know? Yeah. Necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, he, he really talks about, like, totalitarianism being defined by, I mean, again, the total consumption of everything in the state and in the personal lives of everyone in the country yeah. into this ideology. Yeah. Like, and any dissent cannot be accepted, you know. And he talks about how, you know, autocrats were generally okay with letting sleeping dogs lie, so to speak, yeah. but to a totalitarianism, even the existence of possible dissent is must be snuffed out which again how how like how much does that remind you of the last couple of years like you're not even letting sleeping dogs lie silence is violence you have to express your opinion your opinion has to be the right one you know like i think i see that to a certain extent but i think it's in a small group like i don't think that's the default position um in our society yeah i think it, i think it depends on where you're at i mean I think the default position is a strong chilling effect for a certain set of views and not for the other, you know. Um, but I, I do think, you know, generally speaking, you're allowed to keep your mouth shut, though it really it really does depend, right? Like, yeah, like whatever, a lot of people were canceled for not putting the black square or whatever during the BLM stuff or... Yeah, I don't know how you think about that one in particular, to be honest. Or even for funding, for like STEM grants and stuff in, in colleges. Like, if you don't do a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement when you're getting a, a grant for your research, like, that is not letting sleeping dogs lie, right? It's not like, hey, we're going to like not ask you about this. It's like, you have to come out and make a positive, affirmative statement supporting this ideology or else you're not going to get research funding. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting about how he's, you know, comparing and contrasting political activity and totalitarian activity is he says political, pol political systems are necessarily limited and necessarily affirm some idea of personal identity. Yeah. Um, and totalitarianism is focused on, you know, eliminating this idea of personal identity everyone in the state is the same yeah and those who are not must be snuffed out right um and he also talks about how um you know there are no limits to the power to, to the power of a totalitarian state um looking at nazi germany or um communist china or the ussr yeah yeah one thing that i'd be interested to see is the you know rich religious oil-based monarchies in the Middle East today, would they yeah. be considered totalitarian or simply autocratic? I don't know enough about the policies there to be able to, to comment on it, really. Well, they do, you know, invade into people's personal lives quite a bit, right? As far as, like, you know, women can't drive and, like, you know, you have to cover your head in public and those types of things are not just purely, like, you know, leave us alone so we can eat cake and yeah, and then we like tower. murder and torture dissenting journalists. Yeah, yeah. Though that's more of like the vain autocracy where it's like, oh, you're talking shit about us, you know, yeah. as opposed to like we're killing you because you like dissent with our ideology, you know. Right. So that that does feel a little more like classic autocracy. Um, right. 
I thought another interesting thing he was talking about was like, or it was kind of funny, was he was talking about the contrast of, of how in the totalitarian state you're expected to devote yourself fully to the state. So the ideal man is a man who will sacrifice himself for his cause, whether on the military or the industrial front. Um, and he said, like, you know, this sort of appeal is not unknown in political regimes, but no one would be so silly as to applaud one for working oneself to death building a road for the Ross and Cromartie County Council, however badly they need <laughs> roads. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which I think is a very good contrast, you know. In, in totalitarian regime, regimes, they do encourage, like, this absurd ethic of sacrifice at all times. Like, it is actually good to work yourself to death, like planting potatoes or whatever it means if it's for the quote-unquote good of the state right right and it's almost more symbolic than because the, the real good of the state would be if you're if you live to plant more potatoes right yeah but it's like you know it, it's this kind of like play of symbols and like you know just takes a massive toll along the way like in in utilitarianism john stuart mill talks about that where he's like sacrifice only should should only be used when it creates a positive benefit like sacrifice for its own sake is not a virtue whereas for the totalitarian like sacrifice for its own sake almost is a virtue right yeah. Yeah. right or at least sacrifice for very little return yeah yeah um i think another really important point here on this ideology chapter is that you know um and i'll quote again here political thinking is to be contrasted to ideological thinking politics cannot furnish us with an ideology an ideology means an end to politics. Though ideologies may combat each other within a political system if they are weak and the system is strong. And then sk skipping forward a little bit. The idea of an ideology of freedom is a contradiction in terms. When everything is knowable, determined, or certain, freedom is impossible. Free actions are always, strictly speaking, unnecessary actions. Politics is not, then, a grasping for the ideal, but neither is it a freezing of tradition. It is an activity, lively, adaptive, flexible, and conciliatory. Politics is the way in which free societies are governed. Politics is politics, and other forms of rule are something else. I like that. It's very well put. Yeah. I did cut out, like, a bunch of sentences. <laughs> like, extra nonsense that he put in there. <laughs> well, we got there. Yeah, he needed an editor. <laughs> But yeah, I, I thought that was interesting, and I think that's one thing we didn't touch on on the first section, is that he talks about politics as well as an, as an activity. Like, politics is like this great human activity of like coming together and trying to reconcile these groups. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it just doesn't feel like that or look like that today because of some of the structural stuff that Michael was talking about, you know? Yeah, because there have been times where people are able to reach across the aisle and like do stuff, um, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the consolidation of power, you know, in the Senate and the House definitely play a part of that. Um, I do think that social media has caused massive polarization and the ability to be in a bubble. You know, if you go and talk to like. Um, people of the older generation i think especially in minnesota like i don't know if that's as much the case here in california but really in minnesota the the gen xers and the baby boomers it was normal for them to have friends and be 
in close relationships with people who were on vastly different sides of the political spectrum. Totally. I mean, they were just your neighbors, you know, they were yeah. your friends, like whatever it is. You had some commonality that brought you together and, and that's fine. I think with social media, um, it's kind of accelerated this ability to say, okay, if you are not in line with my values and opinions on everything, then I'm just going to cut you out and you have no place in my life, you know, or, or in society. You know what that sounds like? Totalitarianism. <laughs> yeah. 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 For Jules' parents too, like they, you know, they grew up friendly with people across the aisle and it just wasn't really a thing like that, you know? Right. Uh, whereas now it's like, it's very different. Yeah. Yeah. It could kill, like it could kill a relationship to admit your politics. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I was going to say something else on this. Oh, yeah. So part of this goes back to, in my mind, like this this idea of like the God-shaped hole in the crisis of meaning, because the reason why people are reaching for political ideology to explain everything in their lives is because they have a, a lack of, of meaning. They have a lack of like tradition or meta narrative to like build their lives around. And you don't need one. Not everyone needs one. But if you're not going to have one, you need something else, you know, be it uh, a rationalist practice or like, you know, you're cultivating objectivity through like study and careful attention over years, or you're like meditating or like, or you worship brands and celebrities, like, but, but that um, hierarchy of values that people have, like, builds itself, it's not intentional. Um, and he, Bernard Crick talks about this in a certain sense where he's like, hey, politics may be messy, mundane, inconclusive. It's a tangled business far removed from the passion for certainty and the fascination for world-shaking quests, which afflict the totalitarian intellectual. But it does, at least in the worst of circumstances, even in the worst of circumstances, give a man some choice of what role to play, some variety of his own experience and some ability to call his soul his own. What stands out to me there that's different from what you quoted earlier is this idea for the passion for certainty and the fascination for world shaking quests. Yeah. I don't think that's just totalitarians. No. I think that's everyone. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, like previously, like we had quests handed to us. Here are the quests. Here are the things that, you know, make life worth living. Here's what you go and do. Um, and we also had certainty added to us. Uh, but since the quote unquote, like death of God, that's all gone. So something has to replace it. Um, yeah, that is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to think about in my own life, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person, so, you know, what would I say that I replace that with? But I think it is probably something along the lines of rationalism or scientism that I generally um, tend towards, but... I try to stay away from ideology, you know, like uh, Crick talks about in this book. I mean, I, I don't think that there is any, like, fundamental key to understanding of the world. I think the world kind of just is, and, like, you just got to, you know, exist and do your best to figure out what the hell to do. I, I, think, I think that's fair. I, I don't think everybody needs an ideology, but I think, how would I put this, like, I would say the, the world shaking quest that I see you on is like a striving for personal excellence. Yeah, you know? that's fair. So th that's something that you found meaningful and you've kind of like taken on is like, 
a central thing in your life, you know? Yeah. So I feel like everybody needs something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. But the question is, why that? And why not just, like, kill as many people as possible? Yeah. So, uh, the crisis... Or why not make your whole life about politics and just push everyone away? (laughs) (laughs) So that's the thing. That's the problem with the crisis of meaning. It's not that, like, everyone has to be, you know... um, whatever like a, a monk or like something like that it's more like how can we help people have something wholesome fulfill that like role in their life yeah you know yeah that makes sense yeah that makes sense because you know before the 20th century there there really wasn't totalitarianism in this way yeah yeah, yeah he talks about how totalitarianism is completely a modern invention and part of that is due to you know religion going like not going away but becoming much diminished much diminished and not like the primary authority in people's lives yeah yeah thought that was interesting for sure oh i thought this was great too which is um this little quote on ideology where he says ideology cannot be taken up and set down by politicians as a weapon it devours its manipulators Oh, that was yeah. That's a good waterfall. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. On to democracy. Uh, yeah. So the next one is a defense of politics against democracy. So, at first glance, you wouldn't think that politics would need to be defended against democracy, but the easiest way to understand why this might be the case is like the scenario of. Two chick or whatever, um, two wolves and a chicken voting on what's for dinner. Yeah. Instantly, you see the problem with purely majoritarian democracy and how it doesn't conciliate like the interests of all groups. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting chapter, and I think the question is, or another related one is that you know, how often have you heard that like, well, the communists claim to be democratic and. What Crick says is the real trouble is, of course, that they do not pretend to be democratic. They are democratic. They are democratic in the sound historical sense of a majority actively willing to be ruled in some other way. So that's an example of the defense of politics. Why politics has to be defended from democracy is because, you know, if you go to, for example, the Chinese populace, they are legitimately strongly in favor of their political system. Or... Their system of governance, to be precise, which is a apolitical, apolitical regime. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting one as well. Yeah, and again, historically, the Nazis were voted in democratically. Yep. Um, and generally speaking, like, you know, another like little pet example that I heard um, is, let's say you have some kids and like, you know, you ask them to all vote on who makes the bed. Do you make the bed or do they make the bed? <laughs> yeah, instantly you see the problem. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting as well because you, you see that part of the, the terror that people feel in this country every four years comes from the fact that every four years, 51% of the country gets to impose their will to, to a certain extent, excessively on the other 49%. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, which is interesting. 
not really super related to that, but I think the, the other interesting thing he talks about in terms of defending uh, politics from democracy is this idea that, like, historically, and when he says historically, he means, like, you know, well before the 20th century, democracy had a very specific meaning, which yeah. was, like, everybody votes on everything, right? Like, absolute democracy. Yeah. Everybody votes on everything, and it's majority rule. Um, but people have kind of twisted it to mean, you know, all things bright and beautiful or some other rather general sentiment. Um, or some people hold that democracy really means liberty or liberalism or individualism or to defend the democratic individual against the democratic majority. Um, but he talks about how that kind of makes it... It cheapens our rhetoric because we have less precise language with which to discuss these ideas. Um, yeah, it's like massive concept creep. Yeah. Yeah. And in particular, you talked about how no nation or country or state that's considered democratic is a true democracy. So yeah. The question is not, you know, there's never an argument for we should have a totally democratic government. The question was always how strong should the democratic element be? Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to frame it. Um, so I think that's interesting. Yeah, I think I think that that definitely is interesting. Um, I had a point to make on that, but I forgot what it is. Oh yeah, so democracy as well. You know, going back to Brian Kaplan on this one is it's one of those things that has a lot of social desirability bias around it. You know, where it's a sacred cow that you know it would be really hard to say in public for most people i want less democracy right um which which is why there's been such concept creep because people like to use this term as a shield for their own interests um and i've seen it useful used effectively as a rhetorical tactic in debates before where someone will just be like oh so you're against democracy and like there's no coming out from under that you know right yeah right yeah i i thought that was related as well it's not so much a critique, but like agreeing with Kaplan from Crick is yeah. like that it is okay to have less democracy. And ultimately, like, we don't have pure democracy. We're fairly far from it, you know, in the sense that we have like local elections, we have federal elections, but we, it's a Republican government, right? Like, yeah. we elect representatives who then make policies. Like, we're, there's, in California, we do have like, you know, ballot measures and stuff that we vote on, but. In most of the country, that's not the case. Yeah. And I'm not even convinced that that's necessarily a good thing because most people don't know the fuck they're talking about. Yeah, I like the recalls. <laughs> I like the, re the recalls I do Especially like. lately. But I agree with, the, I agree with you that um, that it takes a lot for, for folks to, you know, have a, have a studied opinion on every single issue, right? If, if you take it to the extreme, um, it's just... It's, it's, it just leads to vast mismanagement. And I also think, like, one thing he says about um, democracies historically is, like, you know, it leads to massive demagoguery. So he talks about, like, Athens and stuff like that, and he says that uh, basically democracies were particularly prone to fall by the insolence of demagogues into tyrannies. And you see that in Nazi Germany, you see that in Soviet Union. Yeah. Though the Soviet Union actually, no, because that one was a violent revolution. 
Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. So Nazi, Nazi Germany, Athens, ancient Greece. Um, yeah, and I think we're definitely in danger of that today. I, I found this quote that I thought you would relate to in terms of what we see today and the dangers of democracy, um, where he says, the need for democracy as an instrument of government then creates the need to manufacture popularity, to sustain mass enthusiasm, to mechanize consent, to destroy all opposition. The people are ground down in fear by constant news, half real or wholly invented, of conspiracies against the nation and the party, and then are raised up in hope by grandiose promises of vast future, always future benefits. Democracy then not merely stabilizes free regimes, it makes stronger unfree regimes and has made possible totalitarianism. For the first time, every stratum of society is important to the ruler and is open to exploitation, whether moral or economic. Yeah, I, I definitely do. Um, I definitely do see a lot of truth in that, and I, I think the challenge of that dynamic is some of the things that are used to spin up a state of emergency are real problems that need to be addressed. You know, with like objective interventions, but when they're used in this way, it discredits them, and it makes it really hard for people to like look at what what the real problem is within the storm of like you know emergency rhetoric that's been spun up yeah and i think you know the police brutality something is, is an example of this to me where there was a real problem at the heart of it and the real problem the kernel of the real problem was spun into you know um a storm of emergency rhetoric out, outsized with what the reality was and it was also a type of rhetoric that made it really hard to actually address the problem and i think that's also true for covid I think that's true for a lot of things. Yeah, I'll throw like uh, illegal immigration, hundred percent voter yeah. fraud, um, absolutely into those yep. as well. I would, I would, t- yeah. Voter fraud is a very example because, yeah, are there some concrete like little you know boring process based changes we can make to like reduce the rate of voter fraud? Sure, but like the um, the percentage is so low that it's yeah. really not that pressing of a problem. Right. Exactly. But it's spun up into something like, you know, well beyond its, its weight because you need to be in that state of emergency to keep people galvanized. You know? Right. Yeah. I thought another interesting thing you talked about here was um, democracy is not necessarily related to political popular government based upon free citizenship. And even where democracy in this sense does coexist with free politics, as in modern America, there is a tension as well as harmony. Democracy is jealous of liberty, and liberty at times fears democracy. Nowhere else in the world, both to the horror and honor of Americans, is the large question of the tyranny of public opinion so debated. If ever the free institutions of America are destroyed, Tocqueville wrote, that event may be attributed to the omnipotence of the majority. Abortion rights. If you live in Oklahoma, the majority says, we don't want abortion. You don't have access to abortion. If you live in California, the majority says you shouldn't conceal and carry. You can't conceal and carry. Yeah. The death of liberty or the tension between liberty and democracy right there. Right. And again, it has this, I, it's, it's, it's not as bad as totalitarianism, but it has this concept of unity, right? Where it's like, we all have to live this way. None of us can do this. None of us can have these weapons. None of us can have abortions, you know? Yeah. It's not just, we're going to do that. You do what you're doing. Right. And, you know, I understand people will make arguments where it's like, hey, this is like, whatever, fundamentally wrong or like this, you know, can affect us as well. 
Um, fair enough, but the point being is still like fifty one percent says no, and the forty nine percent just suffers. Right. Yeah. So I think that's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I thought another thing that was interesting that he touched on was like constitution a constitution can claim to be based on the sovereignty of the people but this has never helped anyone decide what disputed words may mean or which policies to adopt um and the complicated decisions of governments can never be undertaken by a body as large as or concept as vague as the people um, and he also says here, sovereignty of the people can mean little more than an affirmation that government should be in the interests of everyone and that it should be representative. But the representative assembly itself will almost invariably present particular cons- constituencies or particular interests or parties. In other words, it will represent an actual political situation, not a theoretical sovereign situation in which all power is supposed to stem from an undivided and indivisible people. Yeah, I think that's very true. And and also, the thing with this, like, sovereignty of the people is you have people, politicians, who claim to speak for this undivided and indivisible unity of the people, right? And you see that under ideological totalitarian regimes, too, where it's like, my mandate comes because I'm a supporter of the people, and I'm the most skilled at reading the will of the people. I know what's best for the people. Right. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this dynamic is part of why I think, like, the government is generally too powerful. Because this, this danger of majoritarianism, the ability of a a slight majority to overrule you and, and intrude into your life would be less horrible if the government generally was less powerful, right? People would be less fearful of this dynamic transpiring if our our lives had more um, boundaries from government intervention. Actually, that's something, we talked about this earlier where you were, you were talking about Crick's opinion that nothing is off the table for government intervention. I think, I hope that that's an observation by Crick and not like a, a moral stamp of approval. Yeah. Because while that may be the case that the government can interfere in all aspects of our life, I still personally think it's wrong for them to. Yeah. No. I, I, would, I would argue that it is. That is what he's saying. Because, you know, he talks about how uh, politics necessarily has to preserve the individuality, you know, yeah. uh, of people. And, yes, he does say, like, you know, ultimately, like, even the fact that we are free and we have liberty is an outcome of politics, yeah. right? And the reason we have that is because of the political situation at the time that you know the country was founded. The fact that it led to better governance. Um, so I would think he. I would. I would think that he. He does think that. Yeah. Yeah. So any any further notes on um, oh yeah I thought this was uh, this was good too what so here we go so a 
A legitimate aim of education, a professor of political science writes, is to seek to promote the major values of a democratic society and to reduce the number of moral mavericks who do not share these preferences. And then Bernard Crick in response to this says, politics will be richer in the United States when more people come to insist that it's a legitimate aim of education to educate and not indoctrinate. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, somewhat tangential, but I thought this was a, an important point. Yeah, it also speaks to totalitarianism, right? When you talk about the, the values of journalists, the value of objectivity in journalism, fading away to be replaced by the value of being an activist as a journalist, right? And the same in all walks of life. Yeah. Where it's not enough to be, you know, a great CEO, a great basketball player, great whatever. You also have to be an activist pushing a certain ideology. Um, yeah. I think another interesting thing from this chapter was this idea that, um, well, he's just really, like, drawing the line between free societies and political societies and democratic societies. And he talks about how England in the early 20th century was a great example of this because um, it was a generally free society. It had a system of representative government in which some popular reforms were proving possible, but it was not democratic at all. Especially in the sense of like the classic sense of democracy, which is majoritarian rule. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. I guess that's why some libertarians kind of like go back and they're like, that's what we should do. Yeah. I I find that a pretty risky proposition because if you look at all the autocrats in history, I mean, many of them did not preside over free societies. Yeah, it's very few, I would say. I think the only modern example that I can think of of an effective autocracy that maintains a relatively free society is is Singapore. Yeah. And even then, it's relatively. Yeah. 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 Um, So that's interesting for sure. Yeah, and then just another thing that he was talking about was like, you know, democracy can only advise and consent and then only in an indirect and spasmodic manner. Representatives must be politicians. If they all simply represent their immediate constituents and did not mediate compromise and occasionally think of the interests of government, they might survive, but it's unlikely that the republic would. A lot of great lines in this book. (laughs) Yeah. You really have to like dig through a lot of crap to find the good lines but there are a lot of good lines yeah yeah i mean does that make you want to revise your recommendation for reading this book or not so here's the thing like it's a good book it's got good content but you have to dig through a lot to get to it yeah it was not a fun read no you know and lots of things aren't fun reads like i wouldn't say you know, J.S. Mills on Liberty is a fun read. I thought it was a fun read. <laughs> well, you might. I didn't think it was a fun read. That's fair, yeah. But I still thought it was way more readable than this. Yeah, it was. It was very, like, lucid compared to this. Yeah, yeah, so I think basically the issue I have with this book is very high quality of ideas, very yeah. low quality of writing. Yeah. Um, and in particular, no con- conciseness at all. He, he does not understand how to be concise. So a lot of the quotes that I've been reading you, I've skipped, like, seven sentences in the middle in between like my highlights in this book yeah to make it like actually make a point that's understandable (laughs) (laughs) that's so true 
That's so true. But on the flip side, each like wall of text usually has at least one or two of those points that's worth worth reading. Yeah. So I guess if you if you think you have the patience for it, you know. Yeah. So okay, the next section is defense against nationalism. So one thing that I thought was weird to me about this chapter, and I was curious what your take on this was, was his weird like definition of a nation. And maybe this is just, again, my ignorance is not being a political scientist, not really knowing what their definition of, of the nation is. But he talked about how, you know, the nationalist wants to be more than a patriot. To him, the patria or country to be loved should only be a nation. There can be no British nationalism, but only an English, Welsh, Scotch, and Northern Irish nationalism. There can be no Canadian nationalism, but only an English and a French yeah, I guess with this, you might be talking about something like this Greek concept of, like, oikos, not the yogurt, which is like, you know... <laughs> not the yogurt, yeah. Which is <laughs> <laughs> like, like home, hearth, like neighbors, you know? Um, the idea of, like, this, like, small platoon where society truly exists. So it's like... It's like a non-conceptual sense of nationalism in a way, you know? It's like the nation you can, you can touch and feel and see day to day. So I guess that's why you have, you know, Quebecois people who are pissed and want to secede because they're like, hey, our language, our culture is this. It's not Canadian broadly. Like, this is who we are. Yeah. But I think what's interesting about that is he does talk about how in the 20th century you saw the rise of American nationalism. Yeah. And, you know, he talks about these, like, historical and cultural lines for, like, for the Irish, the Welsh, the Scots you know the yeah. english or the french canadians but what is that in the u.s i mean the u.s is really by definition the the lack of one defining you know history before 1776 yeah 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 i think i think that's true i think that's true it's i don't know american nationalism is like a weird thing i yeah it's a very strange situation i mean Not to just have a super long silence in this podcast, but I, I guess it's just like, it feels like America right now is a battleground for ideology, and the concept of American nationalism is very, like, disparate, depending on, like, who's talking about it, you know? Yeah. Like, what that looks like and who's included in that, like, really varies depending on different groups, and but I guess that's your point, in a way. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing. I mean, maybe someone who's listening who is a political scientist will send me an email at contact at rdmar.io and explain to me what this really constrained idea of what a nation is means and, and what it stems from. Yeah, and as you can see, like, we respond to stuff. This whole episode is a response to, you know, Michael's uh, critique of Brian Kaplan's critique of politicians. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, hit us up and... and um, we might just read a horrible book in order to, so you don't have to, to, to delve into what you want us to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Straight from the uh, Oxford politics reading list to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Never again. Um, yeah, so because of this idea of, of the nation being so constrained, I, I didn't get a ton out of this nationalism chapter compared to the last few. Um, oh, here he talks about the 
the uh, American nationalism. He does say that the national identification was with the Constitution itself and the political principles of the Declaration of Independence. It was overwhelmingly a political agreement to be governed by an agreed set of political institutions. Politics itself was the foundation of American national unity. And cultural nationalism only arose in the memory of men still living. So that right there might be it. You know, where it's like, the, again, it's about unity, right? Each of these in a way is about unity. Ideology is everyone has to be the perfect Soviet man, you know, across the board in every single aspect of their lives, from musical taste to the structure of their family to their political beliefs. Democracy is everyone has to abide by the will of the majority. Nationalism is everyone has to obey the hegemonic culture that, like, kind of resides in a region. Right? Everyone has to conform to this, this vision of like what it means to be an American. Um, and there's no room for disagreement. There's no room for um, pushing back and saying, hey, no, I want to do this thing differently, my own way. You know? Yeah. No room for peeking ducks on Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, and I think another interesting thing he talks about is how nationalism often leads to the nation acting in against its own interests. So he talks about the Treaty of Versailles and how because of this nationalistic desire for revenge against uh, the Germans, it, it kind of led to, um, you know, worse outcomes. Um you know, and he says here, the Allies had both the power and the right to dictate a peace, but they had the greater responsibility to make a peace that would endure. It is not what a lawyer tells me I may do, cried Burke, but what humanity, reason, and justice tell me I ought to do. Is a political act the worst for being a generous one? Hmm. Yeah, I really like that. And, and along those lines, he had a, a quote. Let's see I really like there as well, which was about revenge. Did you use to underline that one? About revenge. Okay, let's see. A politics of vengeance is not politics. Yeah. Revenge is a recklessness towards the future in a vain attempt to make the present abolish a suffering which is already past. I thought that was a, a really strong line. Yeah. And a very wise one. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, when I read that, I just think of, like, a lot of things. But one thing I think of that uh, is outside of an American context that might give Americans a little, like, exposure of what this can look like over long periods of time is in India, people will sometimes riot and, like, burn down a temple or mosque because another temple or mosque was burned down, like, 900 years ago in that spot. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a crazy thing. So when you think you can abolish the sufferings of the past, you got to decide how far back you're willing to go because you pretty much have to go back to the Garden of Eden to like really get anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's one thing that makes governance in India very complicated and hard to understand for me compared to here. It's just that, you know, these deep, deep, you know, perceived slights and injustices, perceived or real, you know, like 
it is true that the Mughals came in in 1200 and burned down a sacred temple, but... But they're gone. They're gone, <laughs> and that was 900 years ago. Yeah. So, like, is this really what we care about? I, it's something that I can't really understand having been raised outside of India. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's also just a, a mindset thing, right? Where it's like, if you're the kind of person who focuses on your own life and trying to improve your own life, you're not going to get caught up with shit like this. Yeah. You know? Um, but I think it's helpful for Americans to understand because sometimes, like, you know, I, I uh, at one time I had a guy in my jiu-jitsu school who was, like, talking about some of his coworkers who were from some, like, old world country. And the coworkers were, like, like trying to beat each other up because of some, like, like unknowable ethnic difference that was uncomprehensible to him. <laughs> like, you know, like, one is, like, a just pulling it out of my hat, like, one is, like, uh, Mycenaean and one's Armenian, and they were trying to, like, beat each other up. <laughs> and he's like, you know, what the fuck? And I was like, what I told him is, you know all the, like, tensions we have here for the past 300 years? Multiply that by, like, 10. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's yeah. what it's like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right, any closing thoughts on nationalism, or are we on to Technology. Well, with nationalism, there's a, there's an additional point he makes about, like, racialism and how, like, racialism kind of, like, is a parasite upon nationalism, where you extend the concept of, you know, culture, home, hearth, neighbors, language, and you add race onto it, and then it becomes, like, something, you know, even, well, definitely pathological, but even more prone to destructiveness, and it also is a vector by which politics can be diminished. Because now you have another axis along which you can dismiss people and not seek to conciliate their interests. Yeah. Yeah. And also another axis along which you can try to force unity by killing off or marginalizing, you know, or dehumanizing others. Yeah, I thought that was interesting and maybe less relevant now in 2022, but very relevant in 1961. Yeah, and still relevant overseas very much. Yeah, that's true. So as I mentioned earlier, that was part one of In Defense of Politics. Tune in next week for A Defense of Politics Against Technology, A Defense of Politics Against False Friends, In Praise of Politics, and a discussion between Ion and I on some potential reforms that we could make to improve our political system uh, in relation to what we discussed with Brian Kaplan a few weeks ago. As always, if you want to chat with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can drop us a line at contact at rdmr.io or hit on up on Twitter at rdmr underscore io. We'll drop an affiliate link to the book. If you want to support the pod and read the book, go ahead and buy it. And uh, I'll be pretty impressed, despite all of our warnings about how dense and uh, painful this book was at times that you chose to read it. Uh, And the last thing I wanted to do is, once again, a shout out to Michael and go check out his newsletter, Bite Leg. Um, I'll put a link to that in the description of the pod as well.